Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Today, Matt Wilk, a Northville-based attorney and Republican 6th Congressional Precinct Delegate, says no one can guarantee which delegates will move forward in the GOP presidential nominating process. Most of Michigan's Republican delegates for deciding the presidential nominee will be determined through a party-run convention on Saturday. But there are dueling conventions, one run by the Pete Hoekstra faction in Grand Rapids and another by the Christina Caramo faction in Detroit. Additionally, the team is joined by Cooley Law School professor Jeffrey Swartz, who disagrees with the belief that states cannot regulate 501c4s as they relate to campaign funding. 501c4 nonprofit organizations have been criticized for carrying anonymous dark money to influence politics and policy. Also, Robin Clark of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians comes on, explaining her journey to becoming the first Anishinaabe woman to serve on the Michigan Natural Resources Commission. Now here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, and for the first and second segments, MERS editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much, Jeff Smith, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast and for putting our audio together. We are logged on around 8.30 a.m. this Monday, and it is officially presidential primary week in the state of Michigan, with elections officially being held on Tuesday, February 27th. And with this time period being the first where election officials across the state must hold at least nine consecutive days of early in-person voting following the passage of Proposal 2 of 2022. Now, there are a lot of dynamics at play here for this presidential primary week, and we could likely do a segment for each one that is currently unraveling, ranging from the instruction for progressive voters to cast an uncommitted ballot in protest against President Joe Biden in relation to the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, and ranging to the origin story of this February election date itself which was pushed for by Democrats in Michigan to make the state one of the five earliest states to go under the Democratic National Committee's latest primary schedule for the 2024 presidential elections. But one story that will possibly still be fresh for our listeners who are tuning into this episode after Tuesday is what is going on with the Michigan Republican Party and its separate March 2nd nominating convention for awarding delegates to a GOP presidential nominee. Some of you all might remember that because of the Republican National Committee does not have the same primary state schedule as the DNC has, the Michigan Republican Party needs to host its own party-ran convention on March 2nd to prevent being penalized for going ahead of the RNC's lineup. 16 of Michigan's 55 Republican delegates for a presidential nominating contest will be based on Tuesday's election results, and 39 will be determined through who wins in the convention. But which convention is the right one? Obviously, we have a divided party in Michigan, one where Christina Caramo, the grassroots chair who was elected last year, is hosting a convention at Huntington Place in Detroit, and where Pete Hoekstra, the chair proclaimed by past President Donald Trump and the RNC, is hosting a convention on the other side of the state at Amway Grand Plaza Hotel in Grand Rapids. We are joined this morning by Matthew Wilt. He is a Republican 6th Congressional Precinct Delegate and an attorney based in Norville. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, let's just kick things off with a question. I'm not sure if it is simple or complicated, but 
what is going on here? Nothing's ever as simple. It's always complicated. In uh, as you described adequately, we are forced to have for the first time a uh, a split between a primary, which means is being held Tuesday, and a caucus uh, with district caucus to elect delegates. And we're required to do that by the RNC because the Democrats in Lansing made us skip the line and we weren't allowed to. So as you indicated, there's going to be a, a, a it's really not going to be a state convention. It's going to be a set of district caucuses held under one roof. So there's going to be 13, there's 13 congressional districts in Michigan. There's going to be 13 meeting rooms, certainly in Grand Rapids. I don't know the, the format in Detroit. I would imagine it's the same. And we're going to elect three delegates and three alternates in each room to go to uh, the national convention. So given the breakdown of uh, sort of where the race has gone, maybe a Nikki Haley delegate or two squeaks in, but probably not because in each individual district, I don't think she carries 33% of the vote. So it'll likely be not a sweep pretty close, but each individual room is going to elect its own delegates to uh, the national convention. Even if Nikki Haley were to get some momentum here in Michigan, let's say she gets 50%, the odds of her getting delegates at this convention is pretty low, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, I think it's, it's very, very low. I don't think there was any real uh, enthusiasm. And I, I'm in the sixth district and we're kind of probably more, we're not, we're maybe a little bit more moderate than any, than some of the other districts. And she really didn't have a ton of support. I think uh, the party, at least from the, the party enthusiasts, They've kind of pushed away from somebody like her. Had Ron DeSantis been in, he might have garnered a little bit more support, but he's not. But I think it's going to be basically all Trump at this point. I have a few questions. I'm a little bit curious. Why should someone who's interested in voting in this Republican primary, uh, why should they still show up for Tuesday when the majority of these delegates are going to be decided in a convention? Well, it's still, you know, it's, you could ask the same question of Democrats, too. I mean, you talked about the uncommitted thing. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think, frankly, by November, they're going to be told to get in line and they will. That's completely for show. Primaries tend to be that way, but it's your civic duty. Get out there. And if you feel as a Republican that you um, want to express your disapproval of uh, the, the the current frontrunner, your 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 job is to go out there and do it, right? And and vice versa. And I think the other part about it for Republicans that they should be doing is let's get comfortable with the new rules right now. Let's get comfortable with, for example, right now and yesterday we are counting absentee ballots. So we need to get comfortable with how that's going to work, knowing that, for example, that you can't spoil your ballot. Okay, Once you turn your absentee ballot, once the count date starts, you can't change your mind. That's a, that's a new rule, too. So I think it's good for a couple of reasons. And I think it's good, even though it's really a 1v1, I think, at this point, or effectively. But I think it's still good good to get out there and do it. And then, then a lot of other places, you've got other issues on the ballot, school stuff. I think you've got marijuana and uh, Pontiac and a couple other things, too. Now, because the RNC has recognized Pete Hoekstra as chair of the party, what's going to happen with this Huntington Place convention being hosted by the Karamo faction? Do those votes just go nowhere? Are some of them going to get recognized? What's the point going on in Detroit? There's two things going on at the Grand Rapids convention. There may be three things going on at the Detroit convention. So the two things that are going on at the Grand Rapids convention, which are in conformance with the rules that were passed a long time ago, were select delegates to the national convention 
and select, we have to select an RNC committee man and committee woman. And those are both contested races. And both of those cases, the RNC is the final arbiter, right? The rules are very clear. They decide who gets to join their club. So they're going to get to decide that. Now, if people decide to go to Detroit to express loyalty to Christina Caramo, they can. And I'm sure they will collect the package of their delegates and their RNC committee man and woman selection and send it to the RNC. The RNC has a credentials committee that makes those decisions. They will not point one. They will not tell you in advance. They have a credentials committee, and this is very, very common. It actually was a, a precedent-setting case in Michigan in the 1980s where there were two competing slates. One was pursuant to a state law, and one was pursuant to RNC rules. And the RNC picked their people, and the people who were pursuant to state law sued. And the court, in this case, the Sixth Circuit, said, no, the RNC makes its own rules. So it's going to be the same there. But no one can, no one can say in advance what they're going to say. Could they split the baby? Could they pick one side versus another? Absolutely. And there's nothing you can do about it if they do. So I think there's a little bit. I will say this, the Christina side is going to Detroit and they have declared, I think it's going to be for their third time, that they are going to have a meeting immediately following their convention where they will unquestionably reaffirm Christina Caramo as the true and rightful chair of the Michigan GOP. I don't think that's worth the paper it's written on. Do you think that this is going to happen regardless of what the judge in Grand Rapids uh, decides this week? Yes. Yes, I do. She has yeah. she has consistently moved the goalposts. And I want to say, and I want to say this, make this clear. I have I hosted an event for Christina Caramo in the 2022 election, among other people. And I think she's just surrounded herself with a bunch of people who are whispering in her ear some very, very wrong things. Originally, she said, well, look, I'm on the RNC website, so I must still be the chair. And then she said, well, wait till what Donald Trump says. And then it was, well, the RNC hasn't given an official ruling. And and now it's wait until the judge rules. And if the judge, Judge Rossi in the 17th Circuit Court in Grand Rapids is supposed to rule, I think, on Tuesday, he can he can push that back. Mm -hmm. I know what evidence he receives Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, but he's expected to rule. So is that going to deter her? Uh, she's already, her people, not necessarily her, I can't hard to distinguish the two, but her people have started to walk back the her statement that she would honor do what the judge says. I'm not sure, but I, I under no circumstances would I say, if the judge says they're all going to stop what they're doing, I, I don't think that's true at all. Because then she's always just going to go back to saying it's whatever the delegates want. The delegates get to pick the chair and she's got delegates. Well, no, well, let, let's be clear. The delegates don't pick the chair. The delegates pick delegates to the state convention who pick the chair. So right, she's, right, okay. she's tailoring and, and understand that the, when, when this went on, the bigger battle was sort of at the county level. And then sort of what happened at the state level was kind of secondary. So she's claiming a majority of a, of a much narrower audience. And keep this in mind. Remember, there were seven people running for a state chair. She did not get a majority until the third vote. When it was her and Matt DiPerno and Scott Greenlee, they all got about a third. I think she may have like 38%. So for her to claim I'm the party of the grassroots, that's just wrong. And, and additionally, when she ran, she said things like, I will raise $50 million. That is on tape, her saying that. And then when she got into the chair, she realized that's not easy. That's very, very hard. 
And one of the things she had suggested was that she, her job was to, in her words, make policy for Michigan Republicans. She mm -hmm. was going to tell Michigan Republicans what issues they should run on. Well, anybody who's been in politics will tell you that doesn't work. That doesn't work that way. Right? It's like my kids telling me what they want for dinner, right? That, that I can pick it, but I can also right. pick something else. And I have a different set of criteria than they do. Well, well Matt, let, let me just ask you this then. How do you see this finally ending up? I mean, how long are we going to have this split party situation as far as you can tell? I think uh, it'll probably go on probably for about another month because I think there are cases, remember, she's not involved in one court case. She's involved in five. So there are other cases that go on. For example, in Ingham County, she's got the case involving the building. And I do this, I do that for a living. That's what I do, commercial real estate. And the motion that she filed was an embarrassment. And it was riddled with inaccuracies and all kinds of things. And it was, if you saw the responses by the trust and by Comerica Bank, they basically carved it apart. Well, she's got to answer for that. That next court hearing is March 7th. That one of the suggestions in the, the, the pleading is we want sanctions because this is ridiculous. And those sanctions may flow to the state committee. And I think if a, a bunch of state committee members are all of a sudden realize, hey, get your checkbook out. You need to write a check for three or four or $5,000. They're, they're not going to be willing to do that. In your own community of Metro Detroit Republican voters, do you have even some neighbors, some friends that are saying to you, hey, I'm going to the Huntington place on March 2nd that are a part of the Christina Caramo faction? Oh, sure. Sure. There, there are probably of our elected, I'd say a dozen maybe that are going to go in the, the 6th, in the Wayne 6th, in other areas like the 13th, which is uh, all encompassed within Detroit, it is, or within Wayne County. They're all they're all going to Detroit, and my understanding is that there there are some other counties. Oddly, Kent County has told their people, "No, no, no, don't go to the convention right in your backyard. Go drive to Detroit." So the issue is when you give that instruction to people and you say, "Hey, you need to go to Detroit," and they do, and they listen to you, and then the word comes out that their vote didn't count, their people aren't being seated, and in some cases they had an opportunity to go to Milwaukee and missed it. That's a tough conversation after that's selected. So, Kyle, to your question, I think as I think it's really more, it's not really a snap of the finger. I think it's really an erosion. You've already seen it. I've seen a lot of people who have said, I supported her, but I was involved in a campaign in 2020 and 2022. And I know you can't run campaigns without money and this isn't working. Or I spoke to a donor and that donor said, my checkbook is firmly in my pocket until this is resolved, which I heard from a lot of donors. Yeah. So I think it just kind of erodes its way down. Right now, you have a very, very small group of people, very loud, talk a lot, but that group is getting smaller and smaller as the days go on. But when you think about this group, I mean, it still is a group at the end of the day. It still is a population of voters. Are you concerned about mm -hmm. them becoming uncommitted when it comes time for the general election? They lose their backing for Trump. They don't help with knocking doors. They don't help with phone banking. Are you afraid about bridges burned? Yeah, great question. When what's interesting about it is what brought these people predominantly to the party that they have never been in before? And the answer was... Donald Trump did. So this was the great cognitive dissonance that was really hard to get over was they came to the party because of Trump. And Trump comes in and says, I picked Pete Hoekstra to be the chair. 
true or not, I don't know. But he he did make he did make a phone call and make an endorsement to change the vote. Do they listen to Donald Trump or do they listen to Christina Caramo? There is a large portion of the Michigan Republic Michigan Republicans, not the Republican Party, but Michigan Republicans who really only have an interest in Donald Trump. You saw that in 2022, where a lot of them stayed home. They said even 2018. And, and, and frankly, his endorsement doesn't carry the weight it's sort of used to. So when he said, get out and vote, vote for Bill Schuette, I don't think five people listened to him. So it's an open question. How do we have that? How do we do that after that? Boy, that's a really good question. That's something we all got to work on. Anything else that you're going to be paying attention to on the national committee, man or woman race at all? I know that we've got a contested race on the Republican committee man and the Republican committee woman. Are they splitting their time between Grand Rapids and Detroit? What, what do you see happening there? That's a great question. I, I think it's not really going to be that way, and it's going to be very interesting. I think that one or two committee women, Hima Kalanagaretti and, and Bernadette, Bernadette Smith, are both going to be in Grand Rapids, I think. Ralph Rebant is going to be in Detroit, no question. Dr. Rob Steele, who's also in the 6th District, he is going to be in Grand Rapids, no question. It's it's hard because when you built, when your message is loyalty to a person and that person goes the wrong way, it's really hard to say, well, I'm changing my mind. I'm not going to be loyal to that person by going to their place because that's where your support came from. So I think that's right. I had one more question I want to ask you, and this has to do with uh, Mike Labadee and his influence on the Michigan Republican Party. It has not gotten a lot of attention in the media. Why do you think that is? Is it just because uh, it's just way too conspiratorial for people to wrap their head around and, and hard to verify? Or what is it? It's very, very hard to believe. And it's hard when you looked at this person and said, boy, I voted for her. I liked her. I This is what I did. And then when you find this out, but from my perspective, I knew people who knew her before she was in politics, and I saw the change myself. It, the influence is tragic, and it's sort of tragic to see someone manipulated that way. There was a big media play on it a few days ago. The speaker came out and laid it out that it's not, and, and that it's consistent between the state of Michigan and a bunch of other states: Idaho, South Carolina, Nevada, Arizona. They've all had these kind of same problems about the the explosion of their party. Now, in Michigan, hey, we're the leaders, so we're ahead of the game, right? So, you know, uh, the, the people who want to make change on the conservative side of the aisle have already started organizing around other things. One group is HRCC is doing really well in fundraising. So is the Senate group, even though they're not, they're not up for election, they're being quite organized. And then I think on the Trump side, I think people are congealing around that where they're kind of pushing off kind of this party takeover business and then moving on to, but hey, we got to actually win campaigns. I want to look into the future at 2028. You think about this DNC schedule, this February 27th primary date. I mean, that is something Democrats advocated for here in Michigan. They wanted Michigan to be a first in the nation state. Yeah. Uh, do you think that Republicans in Michigan need to improve their game so that on the Republican side too, Michigan be can become a first in the nation state for 2028? No, I think the, the the issue that was we all missed is the Republicans had an option to hold their own primary on their own schedule, but they couldn't afford it because the state will provide you with a day and you can take that day or you can choose your own day. But you just have to pay for it. And it's not supremely expensive. It's probably in the low seven figures. It's probably money that is better used elsewhere. 
but in a previous lifetime, they would have done it. They would have said, no, it's okay. We'll just grow our own. We'll do our own on, on Super Tuesday. Republicans have that cadence. Now, in t- fasting forward, fast forward to 2028, who's going to be on the ballot? Well, I tell you, two people it's not going to be. Joe Biden's not going to be on the ballot. And Donald Trump's probably not going to be on the ballot. So which, which direction are they going to go? Is it going to be pushed to the core, which is what the Democrats attempted to do. This, this was going to be their first big labor union state, right? And oh, the Republicans, does it does it go similarly? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I think 2028 will be a fascinating election. You know, if you think about it, presidents for a long time have been all born at that same time, right? And then they're going to run out. And now who are we going to pick? Is it going to be a Gavin Newsom or a Gretchen Whitmer or a Ron DeSantis or a Tim Scott or somebody like that? Great question. No idea. I think before we leave, I want to look at this poll that I found that uh, Bonus Finder conducted using 3,000 American voters, uh, looking specifically at social media. And they found that 58% of Americans do not trust President Joe Biden nor Donald Trump on social media platforms specifically. How do you think we got here, at least from the Republican perspective? Why are we getting a rematch of what it seems that neither side is super excited about? Well, I I think that this has been going on for some time, and the, the, there there is a distinction between those people who are good at running for office and those are good at governing. Okay, those are those are two very very different skill sets. And for a while, a long while, I mean, Samantha, maybe since you were a kid, we have had people who are good at running for office, but not necessarily great at running the office. So that's why you sort of end up with this because eventually. People like myself, yourself, people across generations, they have to observe the results of that. And another thing that we have going on that's very, very different from 25 years ago is that log rolling is verboten on both sides. Okay. So log rolling, when I was in college, that's where you vote for some, I'll vote for Kyle's bill that I don't care about. And maybe I'm going to take a more moderate position and Kyle's going to vote for my bill, maybe something he doesn't care about. And he's going to take a more moderate position and we're both happy. That does not happen anymore. There used to be a, a, a there was a, a great study that said it was how far right is the left, it, the furthest right Democrat and the furthest left Republican. And the area between them was the area of compromise. Maybe in 15, 20 years ago, it was a third or more of the House and a big sliver of the Senate. Now it's nobody in the Senate and like four people in the House. And because of that, you get this great dissatisfaction. Now people interpret dissatisfaction as dissatisfaction with the people in office. But it can be dissatisfaction generally. I think people are very, very dissatisfied with how their government functions. No question. Now, before we say goodbye, we're a little bit over time. I just have a quick little fun question to ask because it is an election week. What do you do with your I vote sticker after you get it? For the last however many years, I get two and I give it to my twins and I have them wear it to school. Oh, my goodness. How about you, Kyle? What do you do with your I vote sticker? I tell them to keep it because I don't want it. I, I don't buy, I'm a bah humbug. I'm sorry. I just, I, I, I don't want it sticking on my clothes and then I got to wash it off. And so he does a premier politics, you know, uh, uh, written source in the state of Michigan. I don't want it. Okay. Yeah, I hear it's you. Okay. I feel like yours is better than what I do. I, this is going to sound so bad. I, well, a little dorky is a better term. I like to put it on my forehead and I take a selfie with it. That is dorky. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
Well, everybody, that is Matthew Wilk, a Republican 6th Congressional Precinct Delegate and an attorney based in Northville. Uh, Matt Oso has served as the treasurer and president of the Northville Public Schools Board of Education and is currently a member of the Northville Township Planning Commission. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. the big stories to come out of Michigan's political ecosystem last week was one involving Unlock Michigan, the signature petition effort to eliminate the state's 1945 Riot Act, which is what the governor used in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic to make executive emergency orders until the state Supreme Court found her uses of the act to be unconstitutional. The petition effort was ultimately approved by the Republican-led legislature in 2021 without being forwarded to the ballot. Now, two longtime political operatives and fundraising strategists, Bright Spark Strategy founder Heather Lombardini and Sandy Baxter, are facing charges by the Attorney General for allegedly spearheading a dark money scheme, with two 501c4s supporting the Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky at the time, raising money from anonymous donors, and altogether providing more than $1.7 million to unlock Michigan. Today, we are joined by Cooley Law Professor Jeffrey Swartz, who instructs on criminal law and criminal procedure. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you doing? Fine, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Jeff, as a law professor, I think the question I want to kick off is, when you read these charges, what are kind of some of your initial earliest thoughts here of what exactly is going on and why does this matter? Well, what's ha happening here is it's an attempt to basically amend 501c3 and c4 as it applies to state elections in Michigan by going after people for knowingly and knowingly circumventing the IRS laws and making illegal contributions. That seems very clear as to what the intent is. I, I think that this is just a way of trying to avoid having to go back to the legislature and ask for new statutes relating to campaign funding, uh, which some people think that the state cannot do as it relates to IRS regulations. I disagree with that. I think they can. I think the biggest question that we have here, and you kind of already indicated this, is can a state do anything to regulate 501c4s, especially when right now it kind of seems that the only entity they really answer to is the federal IRS? Well, they answer to the IRS, but that's not completely true. The truth of the matter is that the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, has jurisdiction over illegal campaign contributions. And they have brought forth on a number of occasions, which brought forth the, by the way, the Citizens United case, the idea that people are using C4s and charitable organizations to fund money into political campaigns, whether they be issues or whether they be for people. The idea being that those charitable organizations can only use a certain amount of their money to do that. But the problem is the Federal Elections Commission doesn't have the personnel and or the ability to investigate everything that they want to investigate. So we get stuck with a lot of people getting money flowing through. The IRS also lacks the personnel to be able to regulate the charitable organizations and how much money they're actually spending on political activities. So it's really kind of a mixed bag of the inability of people to do this and the attempts by charitable organizations to fund any issue that they want to pursue. 
let's say that the state legislature here in Michigan wanted to create a new law and say that you had to do some type of reporting on the people who give to these 501c4s or these 527s. Is that something that the state legislature could put out there? You do have some problems with the supremacy clause of the Constitution. That is, if you're trying to regulate organizations that are created as a result of a federal tax law or tax regulation, can the state override that? And that is, in particular, whether, in fact, they can order charitable organizations to disclose where their money comes from or that a campaign, whether it be for an issue or otherwise, has to be able to disclose where the money behind the contribution came from. That's going to be a problem, except for states like, for example, I'm in Florida. We have some rather strong regulations as a result of our need for sunshine. That is, people have to disclose their contributions because they can only give so much. People have gotten behind that law, so it would have to be strictly construed by the state and by the federal courts to say there is a, a need for those laws to regulate state contributions or state laws relating to contributions. It would be fought very hard. And the question now is, would Citizens United reach down to the state level and say you can't do that? So what I'm hearing is that the state could go ahead and try and pass something. The governor could sign it. They could try and enact it. It would get challenged in court, probably in federal court. And this would be something that would have to work its way through the court system before we would get a final answer on this. That's probably accurate. The other thing that could happen is if you had the vote power and you could get it through the legislature, you could try to amend the state constitution to include those things in your election laws. And as a result of which, it would go directly to the Supreme Court probably in the idea does the Supreme Court or the federal constitution have the power to overrule state constitutions regulating their own elections. And that, of course, we are going to find out about. And we found out a little bit about this court when we started talking about the Colorado law involving the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that somehow or another, Bush v. Gore and that case are basically saying the federal courts can reach down and regulate state elections, even though they probably shouldn't under the 10th Amendment. It seems that the biggest talked about benefit of a 501c4 is its anonymous nature. Now, at what point does 501c4 fundraising become an unethical dark money scheme? What is the definition of the transition from just collecting money into something that is just a part of American society? And at what point do you cross the bridge and it actually becomes a dark money scheme? It becomes a dark money scheme when, in fact, most of the money, the bulk of the money that's being raised by the charitable organization is being used for political purposes. And when that starts happening, then you have to look at it and you say, wait a minute, you raised $1 million. You gave 900000 of it to some issue uh, organizations such as Unlock Michigan. Now you're crossing over from, okay, I have an issue that's important to me. Uh, whatever my purpose is as a charitable organization, say I'm a church. How does that relate to your church when you're talking about Unlock Michigan as opposed to something involving the First Amendment? So now you're looking at them differently, and that's where the ethical issues come in. That is, it may not be a direct violation of the law and, and or the wording of the law by the letter, 
But the truth of the matter is that it's violating the, the spirit behind the law. The question is, can the FEC really invade the spirit of the law? Can IRS invade the spirit of the law if, in fact, the charitable organization comes up with some explanation which someone, even though it's far-fetched, could find to be reasonable? Have you ever seen the IRS actually crack down on 501c4s or 527s and take away their nonprofit status for doing exactly as we're talking about right now, using these funds to fund political operations? There are instances where that has actually occurred. They haven't been highly publicized. Mostly they were done on a local basis. But the truth of the matter is that, that in fact, IRS tried to crack down. Then we had a change of administration. And that administration said, no, nah, we don't want you doing that anymore. And IRS stopped. Now IRS has got more personnel, and I think they're going to be more aware of what's going on, and they're going to start looking at some of these 501c3s and c4s to find out the exchange of money where it's coming from. They can do this. They just The FEC doesn't have the personnel. IRS didn't have the personnel, and there wasn't a will in the IRS to do this in the past. Well, you think about this, of the IRS not having the personnel, the FEC not having the personnel. I mean, these are federal large-scale entities, big-time yes. bodies. Yes. Could a, a state create a body that would be functioning if you already see these federal bodies struggle? You see, I, in this particular instance, when we talk about Unlock Michigan, to me, if they limit it solely to a state issue or a state office holder, as opposed to a federal officer, I think at that point, the state would have a, a legitimate argument saying, we are regulating our own elections. And as long as we're regulating our own elections, the federal regulations don't have anything to do with disclosures that need to be made. Uh, Citizens United talked about federal elections. I don't think anyone's really tested it at this point to find out if a state can get behind Citizens United and say, I'm sorry, but this is my state, this is my constitution that's being messed with. And so as a result of which, I have the right to regulate my state's elections. And I think that's the biggest argument they can make. We haven't seen that yet with a state that has taken an, an initiative like that, have we? No, we have not. And I think it's somewhere where they need to go. Michigan could be the first uh, since we've had this case here with the Mike Shirky 501c4s, correct? That is correct. You could see that at this point. They could. Their argument will be, we have statutes, we're applying our statutes, this is strictly a state matter, there is no federal question here. Now the defense is going to raise a federal question of First Amendment, they're going to claim that Citizens United is really the issue here, and there will be a battle over the Supremacy Clause, whether it actually applies to state elections, and that's going to be interesting. I'm a little bit curious. Should the Attorney General, Attorney General Dana Nessel here in the state of Michigan, should be she be using these charges as a stepping stone to look into other ballot question committees? Well, I think this is kind of a trial balloon. I'm sure there are other places they could go. These people have been very blatant and very open about what they're doing. And so as a result of which, I think to a certain extent, they were inviting the idea of being scrutinized. I don't think that they thought they would be charged with a crime. So as a result of which, it has taken that extra step. Instead of investigating them on strictly a regulatory issue, they've now taken that regulatory issue and turned it into a crime. And as a result of which, claiming fraud and all the things that go with it. 
Uh, I think this took the extra step. And the issue is now is can the government, that is the Michigan state government, punish people for doing things that may fall within Citizens United? And that'll be the, those, that's the trial issue. And that'll be the motion to dismiss. And that'll be all kinds of things that happen between now and the trial in this matter. It seems to me that there's a lot hinging on this particular case, because if the defense can argue that you could never really prove that X money went into this 501c4, and then with the direct intention that I was going to use that, that X amount of money and fund this ballot proposal, if you can't prove that in this case, that really takes the air out of the balloon for the attorney general and the secretary of state and anybody who wants to regulate any type of movement of campaign money in this state, doesn't it? Well, it'll depend upon what they have. Maybe there's direct statements from these people that I don't know about when they raised some of the money and said, really, what we're doing is we're raising money for this. And if you give us the money, that's where it's eventually going to go. That would be a blatant and, 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 and not even circumstantial case. That would be a direct intent on their part. However, don't avoid looking at something on a circumstantial basis. That is taking a look at, for example, the best way to explain circumstantial evidence is this. If I go to bed at night and there's no snow on the ground, I wake up in the morning and there's snow on the ground, even though the sun is shining, I can honestly believe that sometime during the night it's snowed. Circumstantially, it's there. I don't know that it snowed. I was sleeping. Okay. But I can assume and I can presume that it snowed. So here I can do the same thing. I can say they raised all this money. They raised $1.2 million and they gave away a million of it to one ballot initiative. And then you take a look at everything else they spent money on and it's, you know, salaries for people and, and whatever else that they had to spend money on office space, whatever it may be, computers. And now you find out out of the 1.2 million, some of it was administrative and the rest of it went to one place. Circumstantially, you can say, well, they kind of thought that that's what they were doing in the first place. And they just did this to get around. And that's, it's, it's snowed. Okay, it snowed last night. And that's the kind of thought process you have to use. You can prove this case for circumstantial evidence. Well, I think it is important to say that these are charges. They are not convictions. Uh, but what do you think would probably be the biggest Achilles heel in these charges? What could possibly be the weak spots? The weak spot would be how much of money did they actually raise? Where did they spend it? And if they spend it on a number of different issues, a number of different places, they might get away with giving the bulk of it to Unlock Michigan. But if the only place the money went is to Unlock Michigan, it's going to be hard for them to say they weren't raising money for Unlock Michigan. Like I said, it snowed last night. What do you think the odds are that we get a felony out of this, a felony conviction? I, I mean, it seems like th that these would be misdemeanors that if they did what we say that they did here. They used this as a conduit to fund. That's a misdemeanor. The felony looks like it. That's a, maybe a little harder climb. Yeah, they'd have to prove that they knowingly and intentionally tried to circumvent the law, that they knew what they were doing was illegal. If what they argue is, I didn't know we couldn't do that. It is a violation. I understand. And I have, you know, I have to be sanctioned somehow. I'll take my misdemeanor and my fine and go on my way. Uh, that's one thing that they're probably trying to arrange right now. That and, and they will argue at trial, if they go to trial, to the jury, that they did not knowingly and intentionally violate the law, and they did not conspire, which is a felony, even if the underlying crime is a misdemeanor. 
that we did not conspire to violate the law. We thought we were doing the right thing. Do you see in other states the same type of rub with campaign finance disclosure where 501c4s are being used to fund these campaigns? It's just not a Michigan deal, is it? It's not just a Michigan deal, and it happens everywhere, especially down here in Florida, where I am. The problem that you have is, again, you have to have the political will. You have to have the political mechanism to be able to do this, to create, and you're willing to go to the mattress and try to get these things done. In Florida, there's no way they want to shut down dark money, even though they probably could. Okay, if you go out to Arizona, eh, it's kind of questionable. I think that they may go after some of this. But if you go to a red state where they're spending all this money, that's just not going to happen. They're just not going to investigate it. They don't care. Georgia is not going to investigate it as far as I can see. Uh, maybe Fonnie Willis might make, that might be her next step. But right now she's got enough on her plate that I don't think she's going to do that. But that's kind of the deal. And you have to go to the state level. You can't do it on a local level like a county. It's going to have to be done by an attorney general, a statewide prosecutor, something like that. It almost seems, and please correct me if I am interpreting what you're saying incorrectly, it almost seems that if the state wants to find its own way of regulating these nonprofits, they can create their own state statute through the legislature and the governor. That will be challenged, and that challenge will ultimately go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that the hypothetical reality here? Yeah, that is what's going on here. And, the, and, and, and I didn't even mention this. There's always a possibility that the state legislature could establish their own tax laws as it relates to, or they have their own tax laws that relate to, for example, charitable organizations. Uh, they don't tax churches uh, for property taxes and things like that. They could say that this is an issue that we have the right to investigate because we regulate these, these particular types of charitable organizations to make sure that they're, if they're not really a charitable organization, that we can tax them because of what they're doing. And so most of those organizations are very careful, but the fact of the matter is they can make mistakes. For example, a not-for-profit that actually makes a profit and people look at it and says it really is a for-profit organization could be declared to be just that, and have to start paying tax on its income or its property. Okay, so that could be a bill that says, I'm trying to imagine what it could look like. It could say something of, you know, if we flag this type of occurrence taking place, then the state would be permitted to add a additional tax that would ultimately cover investigation costs. Well, they could, no, that, that's a little bit different. Investigation costs are covered under separate statutes. When someone is convicted, normally they have to reimburse the state for the investigation of the matter, or there's the power to do it. I mean, some people just can't pay, so as a result of which they get hit with minimal amounts. Big companies, for example, take a look at New York and the Trump case. He's going to get hit with a huge amount of money for the investigation that had to be performed by the state of New York on the recent verdict that they got. And it's going to be a lot of money. It's going to be millions of dollars. If I if I commit an armed robbery and and I'm on and I have no money, it's nonsensical to get me for a hundred thousand dollars in investigative costs. You know, you might get five thousand. I'll have to pay it when I get out of prison. Something like that. In this particular instance, what I'm talking about is the idea that if a if a charitable organization or a not for profit turns out to be for-profit, 
they're actually making money and, and they're spending the money on things that don't go along with what their mission may be, then under those circumstances, there's the possibility that the state could come in and take away their status as it relates to state taxes, not to uh, federal taxes. The state of Florida, for example, Scientology has taken over the entire city of Clearwater, downtown Clearwater. They bought all the real estate and they declared themselves to be a church and said, we are a church pursuant to federal tax regulations. And because you tie your taxation to the federal regulations, we don't have to pay any property tax, therefore destroying, destroying the tax base for the city of Clearwater's downtown area. That's why the city council has been fighting Scientology for years over that. Here, the same thing could happen where they could go after C3, C4 charitable organization and say, wait a minute, you're not for profit. You're spending your money on things that relate to profit making. You're buying real estate, whatever it may be, and you're making profits on that real estate. So as a result of which, under our state taxation regulations, we're taking away that status from you, and you will pay taxes that are due the state for whatever you're doing. The 1630 fund, are you familiar with that? I'm really not. I'm sorry. Right. I wish I was. All right. So the reason I mentioned that is the 1630 fund has been described as the indisputable heavyweight of Democratic dark money. And it's been used in this state of bankroll such ballot proposals as proposal two of last cycle, which was the promote the vote, which gave us nine days of early voting and so forth. But they've been active in other types of campaigns here and other ballot proposals. And the big rub on them is that they're from D.C. and you don't know where any of the money for this fund ever came from, the 1630 fund. And, and the irony is, is that while they promote more openness in voting, they have no openness in who's bankrolling them. So I bring them up because we've got here a situation where we have a D.C. outfit that is funding dark money for a ballot proposal. And you could say that Mike Shirky's groups here were doing something similar where they were using dark money to bankroll a ballot proposal. And is there really any difference between the two? I'm not quite sure because I'd, I'd have to know where the money came from. I mean, in the context of the organization in Washington that gave them the money, I don't know if they come right out and say, this is what we're raising money for. We're raising money for this type of proposal. Now, you'd like to know if some big multimillionaire has put about $10 million in there and said, spread the wealth. I'm sure everybody would like to know. You know, the old George Soros. George Soros is responsible for everything that happens in the Democratic Party, money-wise, at least if you listen to some people. The, the bottom line is that I would agree with you if, if, there was, if they're holding themselves out as something different. If they're saying, yes, we're raising money, we're raising it from big money donors, we don't have to tell you who they are, but the truth of the matter is we're giving it to these people in Michigan because we want openness and better ballot access and all the things that go with it. Most people don't want to attack that. But to the same extent, because the Unlock Michigan group is fairly far to the right in trying to diminish government power to be able to take care of its the argument being to take care of its populace and do the things necessary in emergencies. People have a tendency to, wait a minute, 
I don't I don't want that to happen. You're attacking, you're trying to limit the government. And that's a far right thought process as opposed to expanding the availability of the vote. It's truly political on both sides. The problem is, is there a political will to do something about 1630? And you're not seeing any political will to do anything about it because the people that need to do something about it don't have the power to do anything about it. So that brings me to my final question that will, I guess, maybe bring this conversation full circle. Uh, but how should the public be feeling right now? Or are you even concerned that these topics go over the general public's head and come off as insider baseball? Well, it is kind of insider baseball. It really is. It's insider trading is what it really is. I look at it from, from the point of view that the public is not looking at campaign funding the way they should. They know that the only alternative to what we're seeing would be more campaign funding from the government, and they are concerned that the government won't be an honest broker in the way that campaign funding is created. Most people don't check off, I want to give a dollar to campaign funding. Uh, they just don't. And, and they don't want the government involved in all in giving money to candidates. So there isn't the kind of money that should be. Should campaign funding uh, be through the government? The problem is that, it, again, camp, Citizens United pretty much indicates it's a First Amendment issue. And if the, it, you cannot restrict the First Amendment involvement, you can limit their involvement by as we know, limiting the amount of money that an individual can give, but it doesn't really change the fact that big money people bundle money and raise tremendous amounts of money and then put it in a package and say, here's $10 million, you're welcome. And uh, yeah, I've got a list of everybody that gave me money. So, so you can do your campaign funding expenditure. The real problem is people aren't paying attention to that. It is one of the things that I have been arguing all along, at least since the last 10 years or so. People are more concerned with personality than they are issues. If people look at issues and they vote on issues that are important to them and the solutions and or the positions that people take, elections become more honest in their results. If people look at just the personality of someone, or in this particular case, in this election cycle, the age of someone and, and, and become more involved in that than looking out for their own good, no matter which way they go, then that really defeats the purpose of everything that we're doing. So they're not looking where the money comes from. In particular, on one side of this year's elections, they figure, oh, I want to give to this person because I want to be part of the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that get raised. I know where it's going. No, you don't, but it doesn't matter. Okay. I want to be part of it. And that's kind of the deal. So they don't worry about funding. They shouldn't be worried about funding and they're, and they're not. They should be worried about issues, but they're not. They're worried about personalities. And just to confirm, when you say Citizens United, you're referring to Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. Correct? That's correct. I'm sorry, okay. when I say, yeah, that's shorthand for, for lawyers, I apologize. I should have given you the whole case. I apologize for that. You are totally fine. I appreciate it. Unfortunately, we are out of time now, but thank you so much, Jeffrey Swartz of Cooley Law School, for joining us on what I'm going to describe the dark money segment of the Merce Monday podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. It was a fun discussion. Thank you. 
Joining us for our final segment of the Merge Monday podcast is Robin Clark, a member of the Sioux St. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians and the first ever Anishinaabe woman to be appointed to the Michigan Natural Resources Commission. Hey, Robin, how are you doing today? Hey, Bujou, thanks for having me. It's a nice sunny day up here at Bauting or Sioux St. Marie, and I'm, I'm happy to spend this time with you. Now, to our listeners, uh, Robin was appointed by the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, in December, and before joining the commission, which oversees the regulation of game species and sports fish in Michigan, Robin has been a researcher for Michigan Tech University, and her career in natural resources management has significantly focused on terrestrial and aquatic ecosystem research and management. I was wondering if we can talk about what life was like growing up in the Upper Peninsula's Native American community, and when did you first become interested in science? Well, my family is from from here, from up in up in the UP, um, but I was born while my my parents were in college down at Michigan State. So I spent the first years of my life actually down in Lansing. However, of course, we spent every holiday, summer times, I spent as much time as possible with my grandparents, cousins, folks up here, here at Bauting. And then I wanted to live and raise my family here so that my kids could grow up with their cousins, right? And their family. When was I first interested in science? As a young kid, I thought about being a veterinarian, right? <laughs> Wanting to work with animals. Um, but then quickly uh, shifted to wanting to be a forest ranger and live out on, you know, one of our uh, national forests, living that dream. But in upper high school, into my bachelor's degree, I got more interested in natural resource management as well as even policy because there's so much to it, right? I got my master's in here again, more, more management, natural resource management focused, and then, you know, had a career mostly working with the Intertribal Council of Michigan on a, like a really wide variety of, here again, natural resource-related projects, working with and for multiple tribes. But I went back in 2017 to get my doctorate in forest science because I wanted to do the, you know, to do the field work. I wanted to be outside and work more intimately on different uh, natural resource, forestry, and, and habitat management projects. So that was my long-winded <laughs> response. Having initially grown up in Lansing and then visiting your family in the Upper Peninsula, when was the first moment where you truly fell in love with nature, that you truly fell in love with the community that you're now located in? Okay, as a kid, I wanted to live up here, right? I remember feeling so sad when we had to go back home, back downstate. I, I will say I went to junior high and in high school up here. So it was, I guess my youth was split. I think uh, it's important experiences with family. We, we went to the powwows, our community powwows up here, and I was able to dance with my sister and, and cousins. And I guess I'm getting really like really mushy here, but there's this island in the St. Mary's River, Sugar Island. And so as a family, you know, there are community gravesite is there and we have I have an uncle who lives over there. And I remember being a young kid driving on the island and my dad telling me to look for bears. And so just like watching out the window, like waiting, waiting to try and look to, to see bears. But as far as I can remember, maybe my first real experiences fishing were up here in this area over in Mulpernley Bay of Lake Superior. And then just 
love being out in the woods. Now, while I'm referring to you as Robin Clark, that's not your Anishinaabe name, which is, and I know that you helped me pronounce it, so I'm going to try on the podcast while we're recording, uh, Mishé Gashi Gokwe, correct? Yep. We talked a little bit about this. You know, I'm not going to make everybody say <laughs> Michigashi Gokwe. But I, I do make an effort to use that name, my Anishinaabe name, especially when I transition to be working with for, with and for a university, as well as in, in moving forward on. Now, I think it's important that we're, um, you know, we're able to use our Anishinaabe names that were definitely not accepted or acceptable in society, you know, when I was for, for the last couple of generations. So it's really awesome that folks like me can we can use our Anishinaabe names in, in public and in conversations like this. How exactly does one get tapped into becoming a part of the Commission of Natural Resources? Was this an appointment that you were actively pursuing in 2023? Did someone connect you with the right people? What was your personal experience like ahead of getting that appointment? I've been aware of the NRC and the, the NRC's, the Natural Resource Commission's role, obviously, very important roles in setting hunting, fishing, you know, harvesting regulations for a long time, but hadn't considered applying for a seat on the commission until this last year. So I heard uh, there were some folks who were like trying to, you know, who, who are some native folks who could even apply or who might be willing to serve on this commissions just to make sure that increase our representation However, I will say uh, that my decision to apply for the commission was completely personal. I, you know, I didn't consult with or gain the support of any of the tribes. I applied as really as a civic duty. I'm mid-career. I have a, a really strong background in natural resource management in Michigan in particular, an understanding of the ecosystems, you know, habitat, as well as great appreciation for and, and value our ability as state citizens to hunt, fish, and trap. It was kind of, it was absolutely a shot in the dark. I was very pleasantly surprised to, to have actually been nominated. When there was that sort of media cluster of, oh my goodness, the first Anishinaabe woman to become a part of this commission, was that something that you thought that you would become when you sent your initial application or was the realization a bit of a surprise for you? I guess I did not think through the uh, potential media outreach that I would <laughs> need to be doing. When I put in my application, I was here again, just thinking of it as like, okay, I'm at this point in my life. It's it's absolutely within my wheelhouse to, to give back and to serve in, in this capacity. However, there is so much more responsibility tied to this seat just for myself as an Anishinaabe woman, as the, as the first Anishinaabe woman that I did not think through. I absolutely thought about the deep responsibilities of all of our Natural Resource Commission or the commissioners, but I was not anticipating the responsibility that I would have in terms of, say, doing interviews, which is not my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> we talked about being science nerds, and I, I think it's a, it, it might be pretty common among science nerds to not love the spotlight. I love to, to dig in deep and learn about um, issues and to really be an expert in an area, but not necessarily be, you know, on the front page of the paper or whatnot. So You would much rather be in the trees yeah. Finding out some science facts as opposed to being in front of a press conference podium. 
Absolutely. In uh, 2021, you had research published, correct, about the Anishinaabe forest relations in eastern upper peninsula of Michigan. Uh, could you just kind of summarize what that research was and what are some of the most interesting aspects of it that you wanted to highlight? Sure. So that paper came out of my dissertation research, and that was absolutely the most social research focused part of my doctoral research. That paper came about through a collaboration amongst Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians members, as well as Bay Mills Indian community members. And different community members shared their time and expertise in terms of looking at and thinking about what are responsible relationships with Northern White Cedar, which are known as Gijik, Gijik and Anishinaabe Moan, or the Anishinaabe language. And so that together through interviews. We were looking at changes in Gijic population, changes in northern white cedar within the, the really the eastern upper peninsula of Michigan, changes through time, changes in individual tribal member access to Gijic or, or northern white cedar for a variety of harvesting uses. And then also coming together to talk about ways that harvesting of the bark, the leaves, the wood from this tree relative can can honor and follow our responsibilities as Anishinaabeg. So it's a really good harvesting relations in a nutshell. <laughs> when you think about your career in science, but also taking this report where you saw that intersection between the Anishinaabe culture and tree harvesting, I mean, throughout all of this, what has been a finding that has really surprised you the most? Well, I am always learning, right? You can... You- you can dedicate your entire life to trying to be an expert on a, you know, a particular tree or a particular place. But I'm always learning both in terms of the, you know, the Western science, climate-driven changes. There's still so much to learn. And then I'm always learning as well about Anishinaabe ways, always learning about what are our responsibilities, what knowledges are shared in our creation stories or our legends. And I think one thing that consistently stands out, and that's the same for Gijic or Northern White Cedar, and for the the different Anishinaabe communities that I've worked with, is how resilient and forward-focused we all are. So Gijic, this this tree, you know, has been oftentimes a wetland, and so I've been subjected to a whole lot of uh, different forest management over the last couple of centuries. We had the great cutover. Um, we had really long period of wetland draining. Gijic has had to face a lot of uh, adversity, right, in the in the past. And then when we think about climate driven changes moving into the future, as well as development or infrastructure development, there's a lot of challenges um, moving forward. But Gijic forests, these cedar swamps, they might be the climate refugia. They might be the strongholds who can stick it out, right? Stick out the the change in temperatures, change in snow cover, etc. Be safe havens for other uh, plants and animals. And so same goes with uh, working with on with Anishinaabe communities and, and knowledges, the sort of forward focus and, and resilience. I know that I had asked this before we hit record. Uh, what is something in Michigan's natural world that has you the most alarmed? So I, yeah, so I brought up the, uh, this winter, right? We have this convergence and an extremely mild winter. 
lack of snowfall, lack of snow sticking around, snow cover, as well as um, lack of ice on the lakes. And I think that our plants, our animals, our fish are, are really resilient and, and very adaptable, but it's also a really big bummer. <laughs> and so I think about the long-term implications of not long-term, even just, you know, within this year, without the very much snow cover up here at Boateng, we won't have a snow pack later on in the spring and then the melting of the snow, the, the spring melt. And so some of those habitats or those ecosystems out here are going to have to deal with a lack of water just because of or connected to how, how little snow there is out there. Oh, Robin, now that we're near the end here, is there anything else that you want to add? Oh, just I, I really appreciate you talking with me today. And <laughs> I think the maybe the one thing that I would like to add is absolutely new on the block. And there's a NRC website where some of the commissioners have email addresses or contact information. And so I'd, I'd welcome like any state citizens to, to be reaching out and using those means of sharing every diverse perspectives, I guess. Everybody, that is Robin Clark. She is a member of the seven-member Natural Resources Commission here in Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks, Samantha. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. I would like to give a big thanks to all of our guests today, such as Northville-based attorney and Republican 6th Congressional Precinct Delegate Matt Wilk and Cooley Law School professor Jeffrey Swartz. And of course, thank you to Robin Clark of the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe for speaking with me on Friday, February 23rd. Also, I would like to express my tremendous gratitude to Kyle Malin for helping me prepare today's episode. I additionally want to let our listeners know that our President's Day episode on February 19th was actually our last episode of being sponsored by AT&T. I would like to take a moment to say thank you to them for supporting our segments and for powering this series. We tremendously appreciate their support over the years, over years of interviews and roundtable discussions. Finally, I want to say thank you to Jeff Smith of Mark Bayshore Audio and Okamets, which is responsible for putting the audio together today. Until next time, I am your host, Samantha Shriver. Hello.